This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 19, The Battle of Issus. The coastal route from Anatolia to the Levant is not particularly straightforward. These lands are quite mountainous and difficult to pass. There is also a body of water which extends into the land which means that anybody wishing to move around this coastal route needed to negotiate this body of water. The Gulf of Water creates a bay which is hugged by the Noor Mountains. The body of water is called the Gulf of Alexandretta and it would represent a crossroads of cultures. If we go far enough back in history we can recognise that the lands around the Gulf of Alexandretta are considered to be a part of the Fertile Crescent so societies who lived around this area of the world would have been introduced to a sedentary agricultural lifestyle quite early on. In fact Anybody that lived near to the Gulf may well have been aware of the spiritual construction of Gobekli Tepe. The site was around 250 kilometres away. We can be fairly confident that civilization in this area of the world was quite advanced. Nearby the kingdom of Ebla would emerge during the 3rd millennium BCE around the same time as the earliest Egyptian dynasties and the first recorded history societies of Mesopotamia. Ebla probably represented a vital trade route from the silver-rich areas of the mountains to the north and the agriculturally rich societies to the south. The Eblaites would become the rivals of the city-state of the Mari on the Euphrates River but they would soon be subject to the might of the Akkadian Empire under the mighty Sargon the Great, who may well have ceremonially washed his weapons near to the Gulf to symbolise his subjugation of the peoples of this area. It is not totally clear whether Sargon reached the silver mines of the lands on the other side of the Gulf of Alexandretta. However, It could have been that a kingdom emerged around these silver mines around this time called Kizuwatna. After the Akkadian demise, the Neo-Sumerians would extend their influence over Ebla, but once again we cannot see any firm evidence of their influence over the silver mines of the Kizuwatna. After the demise of the Neo-Sumerians, a new kingdom would emerge where Ebla had existed previously. The kingdom would be called Yamhad, and this was the beginning of the second millennium BCE. The Yamhad would become an influence over Mesopotamian politics, 
but they do not appear to have developed control over the silver-rich kingdoms of Kizuwatna. And this may have been because Kizuwatna was developing a relationship with another emerging kingdom to their north, the Hittites. The Hittites would develop to become a powerful empire during the second millennium BCE and would destroy the Yamhad kingdom until they were pushed back from the gulf by the emerging Mitanni kingdom. So we can see how important the lands around the gulf were as so many kingdoms were trying to gain control of this important mountain pass and the neighbouring lands. This certainly wouldn't stop throughout the second millennium BCE and the next major power to show an interest would be the Egyptians, particularly under Pharaoh Thutmose III. However, while the Egyptians approached from the Levant, the Kizawatna kingdom would still switch allegiances between the Hittites and the Mitanni, according to whatever could protect their best interests. Eventually, the Hittites would push their dominance by taking over Kizawatna, the Mitanni, and pushing the Egyptians away from the Gulf of Alexandretta. So the entire area remained firmly within the mighty Hittite Empire right through until the late Bronze Age collapse which saw the collapse of the Hittite Empire. The Gulf of Alexandretta would now be flanked by two Syro-Hittite states, Kuwait to the north and Patin to the south. Over the course of the earliest centuries of the first millennium BCE, both of these states would be periodically ruled over by the Assyrians who experienced mixed fortunes. When things were not going favourably, the Syro-Hittite states could go about their business without having to account to the Assyrians. But the Assyrians would inevitably come back until the eventual and dramatic collapse of the Assyrian Empire. It would be the Neo-Babylonians who would take over the lands around the Gulf of Alexandretta. As we are well aware though, the Neo-Babylonians were conquered by Cyrus the Great and the Achaemenid Persians during the 6th century BCE. So this is the story of how this mountain pass on the edge of a bay came under the influence of the Achaemenid Persians. Achaemenid Persia The Persian ethnic group are popularly believed to have migrated southwards from what may have been the heartlands of the first Indo-European speakers from the Eurasian steppe, although much of the origin can be challenged. A Persian man called Tespis appears to have taken control of the Elamite city of Anshan sometime during the 7th century BCE and would be regarded as the king of the Persians. Anshan was within the Assyrian Empire at this time and then it was under the Empire of the Medes after the collapse of the Assyrians. So this would have been around the same time that the Babylonians took control of the area around the Gulf of Alexandretta. The Persian kings ruled over Anshan within the Empire of the Medes until the great-grandson of Tespis, 
came to the Persian throne, Cyrus II, better known to us as Cyrus the Great. As we discovered during episode 1 of this volume, Cyrus the Great actually conquered the ruling Median Empire, therefore creating a new Persian Empire. So this is around the time when the Gulf of Alexandretta became a part of the Persian Empire and it was roughly 200 years before the battle that is the subject of this podcast. In the 200 years following, the Persians would build the largest empire that the world had ever seen. Cyrus extended the empire across Anatolia to its coast on the Aegean Sea and Cyrus's son Cambyses II secured Egypt as part of the Persian Empire. Cambyses died without an heir and a man called Darius ultimately took over the empire. Darius was the first Persian king since they occupied Anshan that was not a direct descendant of the royal line. As such, Darius would claim that he descended from Tespis through an alternative son than Cyrus and Cambyses and that Tespis was a son of a man called Achaemenes, hence the reason why we call this empire the Achaemenid Empire. The Greek city-states were somewhat troublesome to the Persians, especially with their influence over the Ionian societies of western Anatolia. Darius I of Achaemenid Persia would launch an attack on the Balkan Peninsula, which was the home of the most powerful Greek city-states. The Greek city-states defended their land successfully, and it would be down to Darius's son, King Xerxes I, to try again. Once again, the Greek city-states were able to resist the attack, and the Achaemenid Persians had to give up on their intentions. The Achaemenid Persian Empire would never really feel quite so stable again after this era, and became more vulnerable going into the 4th century BCE with a lot of dynastic disputes. The vastness of the empire would mean that there would always be rebellions, which was a big problem because the Achaemenid Persian army was made up of factions from all around the empire, and so the Achaemenids would have to recruit foreign mercenaries, including Greek speakers. It would be in the year 336 BCE that another man called Darius would ascend to the Persian throne and rule as Darius III. This would also be the same year that there would be a new king of Macedon. Macedon Homer makes no mention of the Macedonians in his works and traditionally the Macedonians were thought of by the established Greek city-states such as Athens, Thebes and Sparta as somewhat barbarian and even though they spoke a Greek dialect the Greek city-states looked at them as distinct and uncivilised. The lands of Macedonia could be closely associated with the post-Bronze Age Dorian migrations due to the fact that we believe that if the Dorians migrated into the Peloponnese after the demise of the Mycenaeans, then they came from the north. So some believe that the earliest people of Macedonian lands must have also been related to the Dorians. Herodotus tells us that the first king of Macedon 
was a man called Perdiccas. But that all depends on whether or not you believe anything that Herodotus tells you. Later traditions talk of a king called Coranus, but he is even earlier than Perdiccas. Either way, we don't have any contemporary evidence for either man. All of the kings of Macedon, before their imperial expansion, were of the Argiad dynasty, and this is because their lineage was traced back to the Peloponnesian land of Argos. How true this is, is debatable, but it does make for an interesting story regarding the Macedonian king Alexander I. Alexander was on the throne at the start of the 5th century BCE. During the reign of his father, Amintas I, Alexander expressed a wish to take part in the Olympic Games. However, due to the fact that the major polis of Greece viewed Macedon as barely Greek, there was a desire to deny Alexander the right to compete. However, it was the fact that the royal house of Macedon claimed descent from the Argives that allowed Alexander to enter the Games, where he finished as a joint winner in the foot race. A major difference between the Macedonians and the Greeks is the fact that the Macedonians were ruled by a king, much like many other worldwide societies had a form of monarchy. So this was not typical of the Greek polis system. So you could be justified in saying that the Macedonians were partly Greek and partly not. To the Athenians, they would see the Macedonians as culturally foreign. To the Persians, they would see the Macedonians as Greek. Alexander I would become tied up in the invasion of Greece by the Persian king Xerxes I. While seemingly actually assisting the Persian king in approaching the Greek city-states of the south, it does seem in retrospect that Alexander I was playing a shrewd game, protecting his own self-interests as he was slyly supplying resources and information to the allied Greeks. Ultimately, as we know, the Persians retreated, leaving Alexander I in a strong position in Macedonia. Through the 5th century BCE, the Macedonians were doing well for themselves. They were very likely providing timber in large amounts to the Athenians to help them to construct their dominant navy. However, as the pressure of the Peloponnesian War started to increase, so the Athenians started putting more pressure on the Macedonians, which forced Macedon to take a political stance, bringing them into the war. Once again, Macedon would play political games between Athens and Sparta, being very careful to look after its own interests and managing to distance themselves from the conflict at the right time. Macedon was fast becoming an entity to be respected, as the Greek polis of the south continued to weaken each other, Macedon could exploit the opportunity to be a good supplier of materials to increase its wealth. The king Archelaus I, who took Macedon into the 4th century BCE, would modernise Macedon by building a respectable military force and developing the culture of the country by means of construction, including the development 
of what would become the Macedonian capital city of Pella. After Archelaus's reign, Macedon would become more interesting to rivals for the throne and local enemies attempting to invade. The man who would emerge in control would be the new king, Alexander II. Alexander would understand the necessity for Macedonia to impose itself on its surroundings and would invade Thessaly, but the dominant Greek polis of Thebes would prevent this action and what's more, Alexander would be obliged to provide his younger brother, Philip, as a hostage. We already know the story of Philip from back in episode 16. Philip would be educated in Thebes before heading back to Macedon. He would become King Philip II and would use everything he had learned to propel Macedon into a powerful kingdom that would defeat Thebes and Athens in battle. Philip's next goal would be to invade the mighty Persians but he would be murdered at his own daughter's wedding. It would be his son, the new king, Alexander III, who would have to take on the task. Darius III Darius III actually took the name Darius upon his ascension to the throne, most likely in honour of Darius the Great. His original name was Artashata, and his first major appointment was as the satrap of Armenia. We don't really know much about Darius's early life, but we do know that he was successful in military conflict as the satrap of Armenia. So it does appear that he had some military credibility when he became the king of Achaemenid Persia, in 336 BCE. During the reign of the Achaemenid king Artaxerxes III, a vizier came to prominence whose name was Bagoas. Bagoas seemed to have a desire to control the affairs of Achaemenid Persia and would have ambitions of putting a king on the throne who he could easily influence. There are mixed reports of how Artaxerxes III's reign came to an end in 338 BCE, with one source telling us that he died of natural causes. However, there is suspicion of foul play. Many suspect that Artaxerxes may have died at the hand of Bagoas. And this is because of what happened afterwards. Artaxerxes III would be succeeded by his son, who would reign as Artaxerxes IV. He was the youngest son of his father, and he was very much influenced by Bagoas, who was responsible for his ascension and attempting to be in control of him. A couple of years later, Artaxerxes IV was tired of Bagoas's interference and attempted to poison him. This failed and Bagoas took his revenge by successfully poisoning Artaxerxes IV and putting Darius III on the throne. History would then repeat itself as Darius would attempt to shrug off the troublesome vizier Bagoas. So Bagoas would return 
to his hallmark method of dealing with the situation and attempt to poison Darius. Darius had been made wise of Bagoas' intentions and it was actually Bagoas who was forced to drink the poison instead. So historians past and present have always suspected Bagoas of multiple attempts of regicide by poison, including Artaxerxes III. So Darius had survived this drama, but he would have been very well aware of the Macedonian plans of Philip II to invade his Achaemenid Persian Empire. However, in that same year, 336 BCE, Philip was murdered and his son Alexander would become Alexander III of Macedon. Alexander the Great We devoted last week's episode to Alexander III of Macedon, known to history as Alexander the Great. So there isn't much need to go into great detail about Alexander here. Alexander was the son of an ambitious, intelligent and successful king, Philip II of Macedon. Alexander was educated by the famous Greek polymath Aristotle. As an adolescent, Alexander was introduced to military tactics, both campaigning with his father and acting as regent to the kingdom in his father's absence. Alexander had been groomed to be great. When Alexander's father, King Philip II, died, Alexander ascended to the Macedonian throne, ruling as Alexander III of Macedon. There are some suspicions about Alexander playing an indirect role in his father's death, although this is difficult to prove without doubt. Alexander would ensure that the rebellions within Greek areas were put down, and where diplomacy failed, such as with the Thebans, Alexander would be more than happy to deal with it in the harshest possible way. The Hellenic League that Philip had established, which would pull together the resources of the Greek polis, was held firmly together by Alexander. Philip also had ambitions of invading Persia. Originally, it was speculated that Philip intended to invade Persia and leave his son Alexander behind to act as regent in charge of home affairs. Whether Alexander was happy about this, and whether this was a factor in any potential resentment of his father, is speculative, but interesting. Alexander was very keen on invading Persia when he took the throne, as we are about to find out. Prelude to the Battle Alexander III made his way across the Hellespont into Asia. Darius III dispatched an army to meet the troops of Macedon and the Hellenic League, but Darius would not be there in person. The two armies met at the Battle of the Granicus. The Persians may not have been expecting such a powerful force to arrive on their lands. With Alexander was the Macedonian Companion Cavalry, an elite group of cavalry first created in the army of Philip II. When Philip took the Macedonian army to fight against the Thebans and the Athenians in 338 BCE at the Battle of Chaeronea, 
he took the Macedonian companion cavalry and Alexander himself may well have commanded them. The Macedonians fought in phalanxes like many other Greek armies. It is quite possible that Philip learnt a lot about Greek polis phalanx warfare while being held captive as a youngster in Thebes. However, another innovation that Philip appears to have introduced to the Macedonian hoplites weaponry is the robust and long Sarissa spear. Traditionally, Greek hoplites always fought with spears that would appear from behind the phalanx wall. These are called dories and measure about 2-3 to three metres in length. But the Macedonian sarissas made from cornel wood were twice as long and made the Macedonian phalanx difficult to approach. Alexander's incredible command of his army at the Battle of the Granicus caused the Persians to flee. Alexander now had Anatolia at his mercy. He would take control of the cities of Halicarnassus, Miletus and Sardis before pushing east into Cappadocia. It was unthinkable that somebody could take this amount of territory off the Persians and the Persian king Darius III was forced into action as a consequence. This time, when the Persians met the Macedonians, Darius would be leading them. As Alexander and the Macedonians approached the Gulf of Alexandretta, Darius would have a strategical plan to link up with his own naval fleet in the Mediterranean and effectively cut off all supply lines to the Macedonians, ending their invasion altogether. The Battle of Issus We have to take educated guesses because it's difficult to trust the writing of ancient historians who often seem to exaggerate numbers for effect. But there seems to be a consensus of around 40,000 being the size of the Macedonian army that worked their way around the Gulf of Alexandretta. And as they went around the Gulf, the Persian army, maybe twice the size of the Macedonians, swept around behind them, attempting to entrap them in the narrow pass between the sea and the mountains. This was a terrific move from Darius, getting in behind Alexander and isolating him. Alexander would have to prepare his army for a showdown, and so he set about organising his military. On the right-hand side would be his trusted elite companion cavalry, the trump card of Alexander's army, led by Alexander himself. On the left-hand side nearest the sea would be the Thessalian cavalry, which Alexander would use more for defensive purposes. In the middle of the formation would be the Macedonian hoplites, armed with their Sarissa spears, and they would be supported by other hoplites, hyperspists and peltist skirmishers, who were the individual infantrymen. One notable difference on this occasion regarding Alexander's phalanxes is that rather than make them narrow and deep as he would usually, he would make them half as deep and twice as wide. The Thessalian cavalry on the sea coast left-hand side of the Macedonian army 
under the command of Parmenion, faced the Persian cavalry commanded by Nabazanes, standing on the opposite side of the river Pinarus, which separated the two armies. The centre of the Persian army was made up of Greek mercenaries, quite likely to be pro-Persian Western Anatolians. These were flanked by the Persian infantry and archers, and supported by Persian cavalry and the famous Immortals, who we first mentioned being a part of Persian King Xerxes the Great's army that fought at the Battle of Thermopylae 150 years earlier. The first action of the battle came when Darius commanded his infantry to cross the river Pinarus. However, there was a limit to the numbers that could travel through this narrow stretch of land, and Alexander attacked the oncoming Persians with bowmen, javelin skirmishers and slingers. Darius would have to employ a different method of attack, so he would send his cavalry along the coast to engage with Alexander's Thessalian cavalry. Once again, Alexander's men showed real resilience and the Thessalian cavalry did their duty of defending the Macedonian left flank. Alexander would be aware that he could not escape this situation by defence alone and that he would need to put some pressure on the Persians or risk being trapped without supply. Although the Persians had built wooden palisades on their side of the river, Alexander ordered his phalanxes to advance and Darius's Greek mercenaries were obliged to engage. This would allow Alexander to make his next decisive move. Alexander would unleash the companion cavalry on the Macedonian right-hand side, nearest the mountains. This was the elite cavalry headed by Alexander himself. The aim was to exploit the disarray created by the advance of the Macedonian phalanxes. The entire left-hand side of the Persians were drawn into a position where they could be surrounded and eliminated from the battle, allowing the Macedonian companion cavalry to advance and attack the Greek mercenaries from the side, which is disastrous for forward-facing phalanxes. This move would be the one that would threaten Darius's own personal position as his own personal bodyguards were about to be forced to engage with the Macedonian cavalry. It would have been at this point that Darius knew that he had been outwitted and outmaneuvered. With his entire left flank destroyed and exposed and the middle and right hand flanks now having to take a much more defensive approach due to the position of the king being threatened, Darius felt that his best option would be to flee the field of battle. He could have stayed and fought until the bitter end, but he knew that he had lost this battle, and if he was captured or killed, then Alexander was in a strong position to take the empire. So Darius decided to live to fight another day. The Greek mercenaries left behind were massacred by the Macedonians, with some suggesting that as many as 50,000 men were killed. It may have even been Alexander 
and some of his companion cavalry who pursued Darius after he left the battlefield. Certainly, Alexander would not have been too keen on allowing Darius to escape. It appears that Darius was pursued for maybe 20 miles or more before eventually escaping the chase of the Macedonians. However, if the king was able to escape, there were others who weren't able to. Darius's own mother, probably encamped somewhere, was captured by Alexander alongside Darius's two wives and their children. Aftermath Alexander's victory at Issus was astonishing. What was originally a desperate entrapment created by a great tactical move by the Persians became an episode where Alexander had not only escaped from the situation but also gained spoils of battle, not only capturing some of Darius's treasure but also his family. Now, Alexander could really pull the strings in Persia and Darius knew this all too well. Darius would initially threaten Alexander with severe consequences if he didn't release his family. But this was laughable to Alexander, who believed that Darius was in absolutely no position to make such threats against him. Alexander and his Macedonian army would be able to march onwards and take the lands of the Levant and Egypt before advancing eastwards. Now, Alexander had gone back to being the aggressor, and Darius realised that he was under serious pressure. Darius would want to strike a peace treaty with Alexander at this point and grant him all the lands to the west of the Euphrates. Alexander refused and continued to march eastwards. So Darius dispatched an army to engage with the Macedonians at a place called Galgamela. That is a story for next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's a fascinating episode in history. Alexander's conquest of the Persian Empire is a very iconic episode and um, probably the greatest and most monumental achievement of the first millennium BCE. So it's um, it's a really interesting and um, and it's fascinating to just ponder on how on earth he did it. So. Hopefully these battle episodes will give us a bit more insight into the politics of the situation and the kind of war tactics that were available to uh, both Alexander and Darius during this period. So uh, a fascinating look at the story. And uh, once again next week we'll be looking at the Battle of Galgamela, which is probably even more interesting off the back of learning about the Battle of Issus. So um, highly recommend that you listen to that one next week. So let's catch up with some of your messages. So um, recommendation on Facebook uh, received from Gabriel Viegas, who's put everything is very well explained and in a very interesting way. Uh, so thank you very much for that, 
recommendation um, if I take a look now at the reviews on Apple Podcasts uh, we've got a new one from Jeepster for Your Love uh, from Germany who's put stirring great podcast with charming narration and fascinating topics well done so thanks to uh, Jeepster for Your Love there for that uh, review. Let's have a look at some of the emails that I've received this week. I've got one from uh, Stan, who's put um, thanks for this beautiful series. Started listening to them while running, and now I'm thinking to start preparing for a marathon so that I can enjoy them all. We'll definitely share everywhere possible. Thanks for the work again, and hugs from Russia. So, terrific to get messages from uh, the countries I would not necessarily immediately expect to get messages from often we're we're looking at USA UK Australia as the the most popular countries that listen to the podcast so to get a message from uh, from a listener in Russia is always a huge pleasure for me uh, Sue Hoffman has put uh, thank you Chris for this great podcast I discovered it by just by chance as we are self-isolating due to the pandemic um, everything uh, sorry, every afternoon I look forward to a new episode. I turn all my devices off and just let myself relax listening to your voice. It has been a real saviour during this global difficult time. Thanks again, Sue Hoffman, London, Ontario, Canada. Uh, thanks, yeah, I think um, podcasts have certainly um, got a place, haven't they, in, uh, in people's lives, especially um, during this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we find ourselves with a lot of time on our hands and and also, you know, those people who normally listen to podcasts when they're commuting are probably missing their podcast time if they're doing other things at home. So it's, uh, it's really sort of turned the world on its head and, and turned our day-to-day lives um, into something a little less recognisable. Um, obviously, we always... Um, um, allow people to sponsor the podcast through the Patreon website and um, anyone who does sponsor the podcast becomes a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and uh, we welcome Tim Olsen into the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week so thank you very much for uh, for your sponsorship Tim that uh, means a great deal uh, one of the things that you can gain when you uh, become a sponsor of the podcast, you can you can um, achieve rewards, and, and one of them, uh, if you uh, accumulate uh, ten dollars worth of um, of uh, donations throughout, any, you know, throughout any time period, um, so you don't have to sign up for um, ten dollars a month. You can accumulate it by by pledging one dollar a month over ten months, so so we still allow you to get the reward that way. Um, for ten dollars a month, we allow you to have a question answered on the podcast. And Mark Veldman has um, has messaged in saying, "Thank you for a great show." My question is, do we know anything about how armies of the ancient world fed themselves while on the march? Given that most settlements at the time were very small. A group of a few thousand people must have been a very, a very serious drain on local resources. Um, thanks and best regards, Mark. Um, yeah, uh, this is a very stark and real reality. 
of ancient warfare is if you were campaigning, you would have to be able to um, exploit the resources of uh, local towns and villages that you came across. And I'm not going to go um, too deeply into answering that question this week because um, I believe that next week's episode is going to go a long way into looking into that aspect of ancient warfare, especially as Alexander now presses on into these foreign lands of, of what is modern-day Syria and Iraq uh, on, his, uh, on his journey to try and defeat Darius once and for all. Now, the thing is, um, you know, he's got, like, you know, you've got desert lands there. He's got to try and make his way over to Mesopotamia. And he's got to feed his army. He's got to keep them fed. He's got to keep them supplied, fresh and ready for battle. Um, now more than ever. Um, so, so what he does next is absolutely critical. And we're going to be looking at that. And that will give us a, a lot of indications about that kind of thing, you know, how um, how ancient world armies uh, would feed themselves um, while they were on the move. So we'll, uh, we'll answer that question, um, I think, in, in a little bit more detail next week. So um, we'll, we'll look at that after the episode's concluded next week. So thanks very much for submitting that excellent question, Mark. Fantastic question. So then let's wrap it up for another week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all staying safe and keeping well at this very difficult time. Uh, please look out for each other. Keep social distancing and, um, and keep um, keep washing your hands. Keep uh, your cleanliness levels as high as possible. Uh, let's stop the spread of this nasty virus. Until next week, the Battle of Galgamela, not one to be missed. Um, we'll see you again next week and uh, stay safe and be well. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.